I didn't know how to send emails. I didn't know how to you really talk to people and have, you know, intelligent conversations, things of that nature that was kind of like normal for my peers was not normal for me. Welcome to the Early Career Moves podcast, the show that highlights remarkable BIPOC young professionals killing it on their career journeys. I'm your host, Priscilla Esquivel-Bolcha, Latinx career coach, corporate consultant, daughter of immigrants, and lover of breakfast tacos. Meet me for a coffee chat every Friday as we either dive into a special guest story or I'll share my own career gems. If you're a BIPOC professional feeling lost in your career or just need a dose of inspiration, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to episode 50 of the Early Career Moves podcast. Can't believe we're already at the 50th episode. Season two is going to episode 60, and then I'm going to take a three-month hiatus and then come back. But yeah, I just can't believe we're already at this point. So today I have a really special guest and a dear friend of mine, Lola Shalola. She was my MBA classmate, and she currently works as senior manager level two at Walmart doing strategy and finance. She lives in Arkansas and she is, wow, just like so freaking smart and wise and has done so much already in her career. She's also a hilarious friend of mine and always makes me like literally belly laugh. Her story is amazing because It's an experience that I think a lot of us go through, but rarely talk about because there's a lot of shame around failure. And her story is about how she dealt with failure early in her career. Her first job out of college, she kind of bombed it. And her manager basically was telling her like, there's no future for you here. Like you need to figure something else out. And so she tells us what that journey was like and how she also had to not only figure out what was next, but do some of the inner healing work to get past the imposter syndrome that was born inside of her as a result of that initial failure. She also talks about being Nigerian descent, growing up in Maryland in an African-American community where she didn't feel accepted and going to an HBCU, but then later having to make that transition to corporate America and not knowing how to fit into corporate America. Now Lola is thriving in corporate America. She's, I think, you know, gone through this long journey of figuring out like who is Lola? What are her strengths? She talks about the power of using a communications coach. Um, So yeah, amazing story. Can't wait for you to dive in. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I had so much fun interviewing her. All right, y'all talk to you later. Hey, before we head into today's episode, I want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram at ECM Podcast. Also head over to ecmpodcast.com where you can get freebies, read the latest ECM blog post, and sign up for our monthly newsletter. And if you or someone you know is looking for one-on-one career coaching, you can sign up to work with me on my website. Lastly, if you're a big fan and supporter of the show, please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how we can reach other people. Okay, let's head into the show. 
I am so excited to welcome Lola to the show. Welcome, Lola. Hey. Hi, Priscilla. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited just to hear about your story, and I'm just super honored to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm honored to have you host me as well. So <laughs> Cool. So let's rewind quite a few years back. Um, I know that you originally were not born in the U.S. You were born mm-hmm. in Nigeria. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that personal story background. So I moved to the state when I was 10 from Lagos, Nigeria. And at that time, I was so little that I didn't really understand the I guess the importance of moving into a new country. I just kind of thought like, why is my parents kind of uprooting me from my life, from everything I've known, Mm -hmm. and then going to a foreign land for what? And one of the things that they used to like convince me is like telling me that when we get to the US, we personally have Santa Claus coming to our doors and kind of giving us um, gifts. And I was like, oh, okay, that's something I've not had before. So maybe this experience could be interesting. So I came, I still remember the exact date, November 20, 2002. And I remember coming out of the airport and my dad has actually been living here since 1995. So I moved in with my mom, my brother and my sister. And yeah, that was in DC, Washington, DC. Now we live in Maryland, but we're still kind of mm-hmm. within the DC, Maryland, uh, Virginia area. Yep. Okay. And so luckily, was there a pretty strong Nigerian community in that area? Or did you feel like you didn't really have other people that were like you around you? Oh, it's huge. So for some reason, there are like certain areas of the US that Nigerians tend to gravitate towards. And DC, Maryland, New York, Houston, and then Atlanta are like the main hubs. And Maryland definitely is one of those places as well, considering its close proximity to DC. And yeah, so we basically got plugged in into a community. However, my experience was a little bit different because my parents tend to actually moved into a neighborhood that was, quote unquote, probably still, quote unquote, ghetto at the moment Mm -hmm. because we're still starting off, didn't really have a lot of money. And my dad had to support a whole family with little income as well. So we ended up moving to a black, all black neighborhood and my story was a little bit different. A lot of uh, bullying and a different way of yeah. life basically started from from there. So you felt like you didn't fit in with like the African-American community? I did not fit in at all. I, I, I remember like everything from my head to toe was being made fun of. So I guess now that I think about it, I didn't re- really realize like how poor we were, I guess, quote unquote. And my dad moved us into a two bedroom apartment. Obviously me and my sister stayed in one room and my mom and dad stayed in another room. And my brother, I was actually talking to my dad the other day. I was like, yo, my brother was like sleeping on the couch for years. Right. And um, we used to have to go kind of go to thrift stores to get uniform for school and things of that nature. And I remember like Converse shoes, but with no Converse logo on it. And, it, and cause it was from Target. And I remember they were like, wow, you got fake me on. You got fake me on. The African booty scratcher got fake me shoes on. You know, it was just kind of weird. I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that sounds like a a negative experience overall then. Well, initially, initially, but with everything in life, everything is temporary. Um, And I think at the time as a teenager, I was able to lean on another friend of mine that was also African. So thank God, Shay Familoni. She's actually a lawyer now, and she got graduated from Wharton with her JD and MBA. Mm-hmm. And so I happened to have Shay with me, 
And me and Shay went through the same struggle. And we just used to comfort each other and be like, you know what? I, I, I remember what I used to say. I used to like the same people that make fun of you are probably the ones that will probably heal you later on in life. And it's sad, <laughs> but true. <laughs> so now yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm probably saying, looking at that and saying, you know what? That was, that's history. I've been able to kind of move, move along. We moved from that bad neighborhood. My parents got better jobs and obviously are doing so much more better now than ever before. So, And so when you were growing up, like what did your parents tell you about you know, like your future career aspirations? Like did they try to influence you in terms of what you would be when you grew up? No, I know that they, they really like wanted me to be very focused, which I liked. Um, they are not like controlling or, or anything like that. They just basically told me, you're smart. You can do whatever you want to do. Just kind of make sure that you are always facing your education. That's the exact word that they say. Face your education and everything else will come after that. <laughs> so that's what mm-hmm. I did. And so eventually you landed in Morgan State University, which is an HBCU. And that's where you finally graduated, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and you changed from applied mathematics to actuarial Mathematics, is that what it's called? Actuarial science. Actuarial science, which I had never heard of until I met you. Mm-hmm. So tell me or tell the audience, like, what what is that? What does that even mean? Okay, so actuarial science is more of statistics and probability driven type course where people are almost predicting the chances of something happening. And this career path is actually more geared towards insurance companies, and they value um, this skill set a lot. So generally what happens is you take different board exams, and the more board exams you you, you take and or you pass, the more certified you are in this field and the more you increase. You, generally, if as an actuary, you don't even need to go for your graduate degree because, and that was one of the main reasons I also chose this path, because the exams itself are super difficult that you don't necessarily need to show your worth per se if you do stay in this career path. The best way to show your credibility would be to to take this exam and and pass those exams. And they're super incredibly hard. (laughs) After my degree, I realized that this is not worth me technically kind of following this path because I realized that I wasn't as passionate as I thought I would be about. I realized that math or anything related to Actuarial science is very, very technical, and you almost become this subject matter expert. And I necessarily did not think that I wanted to be broad. I wanted to broaden my skill set, and I knew that this path was going to narrow me into one field. Yeah, it's almost like you're like a specialist at that point, right? Exactly, exactly. And it was gonna—I was only going to probably be working for an insurance company for the most part, if not forever. <laughs> <laughs> So I kind of knew halfway through my my second year that I wasn't going to really follow the career path I started with. However, I did know that it was me kind of finishing and getting that degree is still beneficial for any other. It just seems like quant is a very highly desired skill to have. And I knew that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, for me kind of talking to different people and recruiters, it seemed like they were super excited to see, one, someone that's interested in quant, but two, that they're female and three, they're black. So Mm -hmm. that kind of set me up for a lot of success, I think, early on. And so I I also, so I did do internships, but it was not in actuarial science. In fact, my first very serious internship, I would probably say, was at Xerox. 
So I was in corporate strategy and that was a different beast on its own. But yeah, I did do internship. So tell me about how you chose to work at Liberty Mutual. Like when you graduated uh, from undergrad, that was your first job, right? Yeah. Yeah. So how did you decide to work for them? I had a few offers. So I had an offer from Vanguard in Pennsylvania. I had an offer from Morgan Stanley in Baltimore, Maryland. And I had one in Seattle, Washington, which was Liberty Mutual. And I remember talking to my advisor and basically telling her, okay, here's all the offers I had. And she basically said, look, this one, for one, offered the most money. And two, it's a development program. From what I've known about development programs, you learn a lot. They basically set you up for success. And she said, based on everything that she's seen, this has the most opportunity for growth. The other one seemed a little bit more stagnant in nature, if you if you understand what I mean. So I started off in the um, analytics development program at so instead of me going the actuary route, even when I did my interview, I told them I'm, I don't want an actuary, but I, I don't want to be an actuary, but I can do anything else that's more quant related. And that was one of the positions that they offered. And I interviewed that. So in the, in the day-to-day role, it was basically me rotating through multiple different teams every two months or two to three months. It was pretty intense. And the first few months was us kind of learning all these technical skills. So learning VBA, visual basics, and learning SQL, learning SAS, all these tools that are that are used by most um, technical, in most technical roles, SAS is one of the most popular ones and SQL is definitely in the more popular one. I don't know if they, I think Tableau has taken over those tools now. But um, so the first few months was very, very technical trainings. And then with those skill sets, you then move into your roles. And the idea there was insurance and Liberty Mutual in general is going through a lot of difficult times and understanding how to cater more to their customers and kind of stay ahead of the comp- uh, competition because it's a very competitive field. And they realized that, you know what, we might need to bring in new new fresh bloods into this and kind of gain new perspective. And that was exactly what we did. They presented us with projects or problems that were ongoing within the industry. And we basically came in and it actually could be me. I would probably go in and present an idea to them. And another rotation comes another fresh grad out of school that Mm. presents the same solutions to them. But then it's basically like they would continue this process until they are able to kind of find the best path forward. And that was exactly what I did. It was pretty intense, I would say. I had new managers every two to three months, and most of them I did poorly, I would say. That was a horrible, horrible. (laughs) However, I would say as well that it set the stage for the rest of my life and the rest of my career. It set the stage for the rest of my Mm -hmm. career. So you said most of them you think you did poorly? No, it's not like I did. I I think. I know I did poorly because my performance review (laughs) was really bad. (laughs) What happened? Like, why was it bad? Okay. So one thing I mentioned is I moved from, I came from HBCU from Baltimore, Maryland to Seattle, Washington. Right. Mm -hmm. And another thing I mentioned was I started a new job in in this field that was super, it was good development, but also very, very high um, steep learning curve. The one thing I didn't tell you is that I did not get a lot of training as to how to do well within corporate America. I did yeah. internships and I knew I didn't do well in those internships because I just didn't know the just basic et- etiquettes, right, of, of being in corporate. I didn't know how to send emails. I didn't know how to you really talk to people and have, you know, intelligent conversations, things of that nature that was kind of like normal for my peers was not normal for me. So I came in from um, into a program that was about nine of us 
um, probably all white. Um, I was the only black and with a few Asians mixed in, in between like two other Asians. And right off the bat, I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not in an HBCU anymore. I'm, I'm in the real world and I'm getting paid to do real work. And I remember just not being able to kind of connect with my managers. I just, you know, they tell me what to do. I just didn't know, should I ask more questions? And I was just kind of always sitting at my desk confused as to what exactly. I'm like, why would you, I guess in my, in my head, I'm like, okay, this is a real cool job and you're giving me real problems. But this, the, I just felt like the problems were like beyond me. I think one of the questions that they asked for me to go and f- figure out is how do we expand in Alaska? <clears throat> because a lot of Alaska, a lot of, a lot of parts in Alaska are not, you know, inhabitable and it's hard for people to move around. And I'm like, I don't know. You tell me how you want to move, <laughs> move <laughs> expand in Alaska. So it was just kind of like, I wish I just was over. It was way too much for me. I, I didn't know what, what I was up against or what I was in for. And I basically mm-hmm. failed miserably, even f- from a presentation perspective. I came from an analytics program. They don't teach us how to present. So I came in there, you know, I, I would present to managers and things of that nature. And they would just kind of pick holes at my analysis. And I'm like, crap, I don't know what to tell you. I should have looked at that. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah. So like kind of like my reputation. Yeah. She might not be the best person for this role. Wow. Okay. So not not only were you moving to Seattle, which is already probably a culture shock because it's such a overwhelmingly white city, mm-hmm. and you were adjusting to being again the only black woman, maybe black person in your program. Exactly. Um. Mm-hmm. And then you weren't you weren't connecting with people. So that must have been kind of like a low point for you in your career. Did you ever think about just like leaving that that year? Oh yeah. Oh freak yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I was already planning how to put my stuff in the storage and kind of tell my parents that I've, it's, it's, it's a fail. I'm moving back to Maryland. Um, and it was, it was one of the lowest times in my life. Probably one of the most, I was the most depressed. I went into probably mid, midway de- depression at that time. And I was what, how old? 22 at that age at 22. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was like, yo, this is not cut. Maybe I chose the wrong career path here. Um, mm-hmm. so I remember kind of sitting there and um and that's when um I was just like god I need help like I am I am struggling and my manager basically came and told me straight up that look no one wants to hire you on their team because the end goal after the rotation is to go full time on a particular team and kind of help them with whatever they they also need S- similar work but probably more long term um and she was just like no like you you know the spread the word is out people think you're not competent you might want to consider just kind of applying to another role outside of the this department that where people don't know who you are. And she said, like, I'll do you a favor. I'll give you a good recommendation. And I was like, okay. She basically was like, you know, I just go on the portal, apply for a job. Hopefully, you know, if you do get an interview, we'll be able to kind of push it through. And, and so, so that's what I did. And thankfully, I got an interview. I got two interviews. <clears throat> one of them didn't give me the role. And one of them came back and said, um, look, we'd like someone else. We like someone else that was external. However, I was able to kind of go to um, my superiors and make an argument as to why we should hire two people. So we're all going to hire you as well. So that was like, thank God. It was so interesting because my role, the development program, I didn't realize that even though I struggled and I did so poorly in that program, that the expectation and standard of that program was so high that it now when I came to this new team, I was working at that kind of standard um of performance that I did well on that team. And they actually now saw me as a superstar. So I was now wow. the 
expert on their team. And they were like, we've never had this before. I was now training people on how to use new tools, things of that nature. So I did, so I did well. Wow. So it was it was like one year of torture kind of last step. And, and then that was it. Like imagine me going through different managers every two months. So I learned different personality types. You know, I learned different um, skills, how to kind of work with people because it, it was kind of like almost like a matrix organization in that small team. I, I learned how to work fast because a lot of developers were super quick working and on on a tool and then presenting in, in two months was super fast so for me I, I became better at those things and, and and I guess that's one of the things sometimes your failures are actually your success stories as well and I did really well and I started doing and that's the team I was on before I came back to business school so I, I really love your story because it's a good example of how to bounce back when things get really hard. Because mm-hmm. when she told you, first of all, I'm really glad that manager gave you that that really candid feedback because yeah. mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes managers like they won't even let you know that you're failing. Exactly. And you kind of just have to figure it out yourself. So like at least you know, they were like, you're not meeting the bar, you know, and then she helped you transition out, whatever. And like, I think a lot of people would have been like, Oh, my God, I need to get out of here. Like, I'm just gonna quit. Mm -hmm. But you had the humility, I think, to be like, okay, maybe this didn't work out. And I'm still gonna stay here, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of people wouldn't have stayed. I did apply. I just didn't get another any other job. So it was just like, okay, I'll deal with it. But but yeah, it was like you said, it was it worked out in the end and I'm glad I stayed. Yeah. Okay. So then then you turned out to be like the rock star, the superstar. And you know, did you get better at the soft skills, like kind of connecting with people? Yeah, yeah. So I realized that okay, even though I might not have worked on this when I was in college, I need to do whatever I can to get better at this. I joined Toastmasters, I started like, you know, volunteering for roles that I thought or actually worked just kind of projects that I thought would get me out of, out of my comfort zone, essentially. So I was signing up for to be heading the process improvement team for the team and for the department as well. So kind of working with senior leaders and also working with associates on process improvement initiatives and kind of getting their ideas together and then presenting to senior leaders. In addition to that, I also started heading focus groups within my team. So like once we get like surveys of what um, our yearly surveys of employee satisfaction rate, I volunteer to kind of take that over and be able to kind of conduct different focus groups. So my point is I focused a lot outside of my day to day on other things, other things I could do to improve those particular aspects of myself that I didn't like or say. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you realize that, wow, I'm making progress. People like me, people come to me. Like, how did you start to realize that it was making a difference? I didn't realize that, which is a sad story. Um, so I didn't realize that. I, Because of my earlier failure, I tag myself as a failure, which is so, so sad. And that's the story that you probably have heard. But yeah, I developed a very, very strong sense of imposter syndrome. So I basically was like, I am in the wrong place. And that kind of, that mentality followed me. So even when people tell me I'm doing a good job, I never believed it. I just always had this self-doubt, like I'm not good enough. I'm in the wrong place. I'm in the wrong career path. Let me just, and even they followed me to business school as well. So even me kind of like getting that admission to business school, I'm like, are these people serious? Did they really just give me admission to business school? Um, So yeah, so it took me some time to finally get over that. And I'm still trying to work on that. 
surprisingly, mm-hmm. but, but yeah. Were there any mentors or anyone at your company that helped you feel a little more like supported? Unfortunately, I, I was so ashamed of talking about these things. I did not seek help. I did not seek um, any sponsor or support. I basically thought if I act like it, people would believe it. So I developed this persona of myself that people were almost kind of scared of me. It seems like it's so even when I tell people of my imposter syndrome, they're like, I never knew you had this. So I, I basically thought it was more important for me to work on my, I don't know, quote unquote, I guess my skill, like pretending a way for me to pretend and, you know, just act like I am good. People will believe mm-hmm. you're good. Um, act confident, like fake, would faking think, it. Yeah, faking yeah, it faking it. It. yeah, exactly. That's exactly the word I was looking. I became. I basically started this active and well, very proactive approach to learning how I can fake it as much as possible, not realizing that I need to believe it, and that's what I learned in business school. So yeah, years later, looking back, how do you view that experience now, now with like a different lens? I've always had the skill from from the very beginning. Um, they didn't hire me because they saw someone that was not good enough. I think looking back, I got scared of the work that was thrown at me, the responsibility that was given to me. And because of that, I froze. I didn't believe in myself and that showed and then as a result, I started thinking, okay, maybe if I can act like I'm strong and if I if I can act like I'm good, they would they would trust me, they would believe me, and my credibility would go up. So looking back, I wish my young self knew she was she was capable. Cause I was. Yeah. And that's that's when I met you in business school, that's how I felt, you know? And I think like a lot of people are really impressed with you and you did really well with recruiting and everything. Do you feel like you grew as a as a young professional during your MBA? Yeah, absolutely. One of the biggest goals for myself, because I knew at that point that I had a few weaknesses. I knew that presentation, my soft skills still needed to be worked on. So any, anything from networking to presentation skills to interviewing to things of that nature, that was like my top priority. And then my second priority after that was I need just to get rid of my imposter syndrome. And my idea in my head was if I can kind of work on things that I think I'm really weak on, it would kind of flow um, with the confidence will come. And it, that did happen. That's exactly what I went into the program with. So when you did say that I did it very well in all this thing, it was because that was my focus. I went to a lot of recruiting events just for the sake of it and to kind of interact with people. I did a lot of interviews sometimes even for that reason, I, whether that be just kind of like information sessions and coffee chats that helped me with my interaction with recruiters. And even my day-to-day conversations with my peers was probably the most impactful. So what I started doing was asking feedback from them and saying, look, this is what I think happened um, during our conversation in our group earlier. Can you tell me how well I, I did? Or can you tell me how well I presented in class today? And, um, you know, someone told me this about myself. So I started working more on my self-awareness too as well. I needed to, you know, in order for me to kind of get over this imposter syndrome, I need to really see myself the way others sees me and, and also the way I am um, in reality. Mm-hmm. And I started asking feedback, you know, I was like, you know what? 
I met with a coach and that's one of the things I started doing. I worked with the communication coach, whatever I got from the communication coach, I take it to my peers and I say, look, this is one of the things that changed my mindset for the longest time is this. She said, look, you have a very commanding voice and you seem like you'll be such an engaging speaker. And I said, look, I said, what is an engaged, um, uh, commanding voice? She said, someone that just seems to be able to captivate someone's attention. And I said, you know, I was like, no one has ever told me that in my life. And I remember, you know, Alexandra, because we're in the same cohort. And so the next day we had class, obviously. And um, I remember sitting next to her and saying, look, Alexandra, this is what I heard. And Alexandra, as we both of us know, Priscilla, she's a very, very honest person. If you want to get feedback from her, from someone, she's probably the right (laughs) person to go to. And I said, Alexandra, look, something I just learned um, yesterday, and I really want your honest feedback on this. And I I said, look, I heard I have a commanding voice. She said, did you not know that? (laughs) And I laughed. I said, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, that's that's very obvious. I'm like, I never knew this. She said, yeah, you do. You do. And I pondered on that for the longest time. And I said, how do I not know this about myself? And I realized that um, that might be some of my strength that I'm not really tapping into. And then I, you know, I entered a case competition and I was one of the people that was obviously everyone has to present. And one of the things that the judges said was, oh, you're an engaging speaker. And I said, what? Where is all this coming from? Like, I've never seen myself Mm -hmm. in this light. And that was the beginning of the rest of the changes that came. Awesome. So my very last question for you, Lola, if somebody was listening to this podcast, and they were interested in getting to where you are today, what would be like one or two pieces of advice that you would give them? My first advice would be ask tons of questions. I mean, assuming I had asked questions and got the lay of the land ahead of what ahead of me starting my career full time and kind of talk to people that have been there, even people, maybe even people that look like you. Your LinkedIn now, it's such an easy way to connect and find out what people are doing. I would say utilize those network, utilize those resources, ask the right questions um, and, and find out things ahead of time before you kind of get yourself thrown into it. The second piece of advice would be take an active approach to your development. And I say this because I'm surprised at how many people kind of say, look, with experience, you will get better. Things of that nature. So they take more of a passive um, approach. Look, you can always get better passively, but it might take time. But if you want to be the best person or the kind of subject matter expert, the person that people kind of look up to and say and start asking the question, how did you do this? How did you do that? You've, you you would have been one of those people that have done your homework before you kind of sit at the table. So I always say, do take a very active approach. I learned this from someone at Liberty Mutual that was very um, high up. And he basically said, I'm always developing myself. So even after every meeting, and he's had tons of meetings, he still kind of reflects and asks himself, how could I have done that better? And having that kind of mentality and constantly being conscious of how you can kind of improve yourself and working to improve yourself would make you... Um, stand out and, and, and successful in anything you do. Hey, are you thinking about changing careers? Then you need to head over to my website, ecmpodcast.com and sign up to get your free 20-page guide that I wrote with you in mind. I wrote this guide to help you change careers and get really clear on what it is that you want to do next. Career clarity is key to a career transition journey. All right, can't wait to hear what you think about it. Have a great week.